Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academic minds into contrast with others. In this episode, we'll be comparing Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples' saga to Daniel Warren Johnson and Mike Spencer's Extremity. And while we're doing that, we'll talk about Warren Family, the space opera genre, graphic depictions of sex and violence. We'll also be looking at Disaster Drawn by Hilary Schutt. Wham! Bang! Pow! Three Three Panel panel contrast. Contrast! This is our third episode. Our first episode comparing Ms. Marvel and the Batgirl of Burnside is out, as well as our second episode comparing Tomb of Dracula and American Vampire. You're more than welcome to go back to those episodes if you haven't had a chance to hear them, but it's not necessary for today's discussion. Speaking of which, let's introduce our panel. We're regularly rotating hosting duties, so I'm taking that role on this time around. I'm Dr. Michael Hancock. I teach at the University of Waterloo. With me is Dr. Andrew DeMann. I teach at St. Jerome's University. And uh, Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. So we're going to start today with Saga, and Anna will be starting us out on that. Yeah, so I'll just do a brief introduction. So Saga is this epic space opera fantasy comic book series written by Brian K. Vaughn with art by Fiona Staples. Uh, It was first published in March of 2012 by Image Comics to immediately positive reviews in a sold-out first printing. Since then, it's been a consistent sales success, with its collected editions routinely selling other top comics like The Walking Dead. Uh, The series is heavily influenced by creator Brian K. Vaughn's love of, and dissatisfaction with, in a lot of ways, um, Star Wars and its extended universe, as well as his experiences as a parent. The series is about a husband and wife, Alana and Marco, well, not initially a husband and wife, but eventually. Um, They're from long-warring extraterrestrial races, fleeing authorities from both sides of the galactic war as they struggle to care for their daughter, Hazel, who is born in the beginning of the series and occasionally narrates it as an unseen adult. The comic was described in solicitations as Star Star Wars meets Game of Thrones, and critics have compared it for somewhat obvious reasons to everything from Lord of the Rings to Romeo and Juliet. The series enjoys nearly universal critical acclaim and is indisputably one of the most celebrated comics currently being published in the U.S. It's won a ton of awards, including 12 Eisners and 17 Harvey Awards and a Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story. Among its most celebrated aspects are its portrayals of ethnic diversity, its representations of sexuality and gender roles, and its treatment of war, all of which we will likely be talking about today. And if we can, finding some things to criticize, because we are critics after all. Andrew, would you like to introduce us to Extremity? Yes. Extremity is created by Daniel Warren Johnson, with colors by Mike Spicer. Uh, It was a 12-issue series which ran from 2017 to 2018 and published by Image Comics. The story follows a ruling family within a post-apocalyptic future where the planet has become, or our planet I should say, uh, has become a large, highly dangerous junkyard. So society uses advanced technology in order to live above the planet. Uh, Unfortunately, clans form, violence becomes a way of life, and a seemingly endless cycle of revenge perpetuates. The two tribes are the Roto, a lower-class society known for their habit of scavenging the ruined world beneath them for resources, and the Pasnina, a ruling-class feudal society that looks down upon the scavengers. This leads to some interesting class commentary within the series. The story explores the concept of forgiveness. 
Johnson was inspired by the true account of Eva Kor, a Jewish prisoner of the Nazis during World War II. Kor was only a child during the time of her imprisonment at the hands of the Nazis, but ultimately is famous for forgiving her captors. Uh, in this story, we follow Jerome, the ruler of the Roto, and his children, Rollo, a pacifist who is spurned by his tribe for his lack of commitment to their revenge, and Thea, a once great artist whose hand was severed by the, pa by the Pasnina, and who, in consequence of the loss of her artistic expression, has a harder time embracing the ideology of pacifism. The family is torn internally between Jerome's need for revenge for the loss of his wife and Rollo and Theo's desire to find a peaceful existence. Along the way, we meet dragons, prophets, killbots, and any other number of engaging science fiction and fantasy tropes. Ultimately, Extremity brings all of these disparate pieces together to form a dynamic and engaging commentary on family, society, and above all else, the futility of violence. So on our previous episode on vampires, we wrapped things down with a discussion of the graphic depiction of violence. I thought we might start this one with a discussion <laughs> of the graphic depiction of violence in the series. Both comics use violence to a very high level. Uh, what use does this have in the story? Does it become gratuitous? Any thoughts on either book in this sense? I mean, I, I will say that my opening salvo for this in terms of saga is that I do find it the violence to be a bit for me a bit less problematic than the violence in extremity but we can unpack that but at the same time I find it to be incredibly beautiful and that's a problem in and of itself and mm -hmm. we can unpack sort of how and why that works but maybe I'll let you I'd agree do. with both those points yeah, yeah. <laughs> same here I think if Fiona Staples artwork is too beautiful to do like anything ugly yeah. at times um, no, I, I think in terms of extremity, I, I agree that violence is genuinely problematic. It's kind of the selling point of the book, it seems, even if you look at just the covers. Uh, and the book is supposed to be a meditation on violence. So th there's a fundamental friction there that I'm not sure is really ever in, resolved or addressed. In contrast with Saga, it does have the defense that Saga, for the most part, it is people living in the shadow of war, but not directly engaged in war for a mm -hmm. lot of it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is people directly engaged in war. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely got that from Extremity. I mean, I definitely got the, like, we're supposed to feel in the grungy, dirty, bloody, thick of this war that is inescapable because this world is perhaps some future version of our world that is very small now and you literally can't escape this, like, all-encompassing war. But at the same time... The violence is definitely supposed to have a beauty in that text as well, though. Yeah. And I mean, I, we, we're going to have to like unpack style probably sooner rather than later. But um, maybe we should just give people sort of an idea of how violence is generally used in each one of these and then maybe get... I mean, I would say my impression of it in Saga is it's usually in the background. There are moments of intense violence, and yet it's usually isolated moments. And we do usually have a lot of scenes of sort of, you know, silence and character work sort of surrounding the violence. For me, Extremity was paced a little bit differently than that. The violence is more in, in, in incessant, but again, mm -hmm. that kind of works with maybe the different goals of these series. I mean, what, mm -hmm. do, what do you think? Well, with, with Sega in particular, violence becomes an expression of character. Yeah. Then, uh, the, char the violence is usually a reflection of this particular character is very violent, such as when the will literally crushes a person's hat skull, yeah. 
or and this is the kind of person he is. Whereas Marco, we always see as very regretful of the violence he commits. So let's just, yeah. the main characters in Saga that we're talking about, I think I mentioned it in my introduction, but so it's Marco and Alana are the, are the two main protagonists of Saga. And then we have various other characters um, who are involved in the story as well. Prince Robot and the Will, who's an assassin, and various other mercenaries and assassins. So we have certain characters that are more violent than other characters. Um, I all of the characters use violence though to some to some extent um i I agree with what you're saying that you know it's often an expression of character i mean i think it's isolated moments that are supposed to be shocking Mm -hmm. which is where i see some of the redeemability of the violence in saga rather than it being just sort of like an all-encompassing sort of wave of like beautiful violence we do have sort of moments where Marco goes nuts on a bunch of guards who are threatening, you know, his wife and daughter, and it's supposed to be shocking and it's supposed to be ugly, and he rejects that violence, you know, in general, but after this moment specifically, which helps to make the point that this violence was supposed to be ugly and an isolated incident. The whole comic is about trying to escape war and escape violence, and Marco has renounced his sword and renounced violence. So that's sort of my argument for some of the violence and it being redeeming, but I think we should also talk about the prettiness of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe coming back to something you said earlier, yeah. Anna, the the linchpin for me in the comparison of violence in these two texts is violence as a tool for solving problems. Okay. And the thing I love about Saga is, yeah, violence will get you out of a jam, but mm-hmm. as soon as you do it, you know it's just a short-term solution yeah, that's yeah. going to cause more problems yeah. for you. Uh, violence and extremity solves all problems, including violence, which is a, a little bit weird and kind of circular at times. But, I mean, the fact that it is circular is also the point of the comic. Yeah, yeah it's consistent with the theme. I mean, that should lead us to like a really cynical reading of the ending of that series. Um, but I, I do think the violence and extremity is presented as more glorious and desirable. I would than say, yeah, that, that's certainly true that the climax of this story is almost keiju level of uh, that's a giant monster fighting with a (laughs) one of the characters in a giant robot fighting a giant robot who has become a giant monster yeah and like that is also presented as kind of as pretty cool yeah and there's other like like tropes and cliches that we can see very strongly in extremity my favorite is the um um, interrupted death blow trope Mm -hmm which is the character has the character on the ground, they're about to stab them, and then kaplam! Something comes from off-panel and saves them. They must do that eight times uh, in this 12-issue series. They just keep doing it again and again. And when you're constantly referencing the sort of action movie tropes, I do think you are falling into a more kind of conventional depiction. Well, let's... Maybe it's useful to compare to how Saga uses those tropes, because Saga is very big on every single issue ends with this splash page of (gasps) kind of moment. Well, I mean, just some of the things we've been saying, I don't know if it answers that question specifically, but it just got me thinking about those uses of violence and stuff again. And and maybe one of the ways to think about it is how do we feel after encountering the violence in these texts? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. violence is something where you always have to talk about affect, right? I mean, that's sort of one of the only ways of getting at it because it is kind of that visceral thing. But I, I feel like when I encounter the violence in Saga, despite the beautifulness of it, I'm not turning the next page hoping there's more. Mm-hmm. I'm turning the next page just praying that these characters who I like so much can just avoid violence. That's yeah. like what I want more than anything. Whereas the way Extremity is set up, you are like, oh man, they found that giant giant killer grasshopper. I hope that that's like going to like eat up a bunch of people because that's kind of 
what's set up as the thing that you want. But I feel like it's it's involving me in the violence in a different way. It does which again the, could be part yeah, of the point. It does yeah. go the other way too, that it is a wearying violence. Yes. Which could yes. be which is is this the text point or are we or does it just get boring after a while? I think that speaks exactly as you were saying earlier. It's consistent with the theme, this idea that um, in extremity, when you're rooting for the violence, you're thus situated in the same mentality as yes. the characters. Uh, so there's a, a nice kind of audience mirroring effect that you get out of that. Uh, and I think that has value in a way that maybe we don't see the same thing in Saga. I'm not necessarily saying it's trying for that. Um, but it is, again, a, a different way to depict violence and the sort of negative elements thereof. Well, I wonder if we should talk about style kind of in relation to that, because, I mean, I imagine we could talk about style in conversation with any of the questions that you're going to ask, Michael. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, Saga has a very sort of sparse, beautiful kind of like style. Whereas I describe, it's not the right term, but I mean, extremity is sort of an, an, I'm doing quotes around this, ugly art style, you know, very fine lines, very that makes everything look kind of ultra detailed, sort of like greasy, grungy, yeah. sort of, you know. So, I mean, you mm -hmm. have ultra detail on blood splatter, on hair, on skin. You know, it's a very, you know, whereas Fiona Staples' artwork is pared down to the extent that, you know, you don't see blemishes on faces. You only see, like, their beautiful, like, sweeping cat eye makeup or, like, the beautiful <laughs> colors of their hair dye, you know. Like, I mean, you, you have the beautiful elements sort of highlighted in her artwork, whereas you have some of the the dirty, messy sort of elements highlighted with the, with the artwork in Extremity. Yeah, I think Extremity is drawing on um, a style of comics art known as the Rough Wave. Yeah. Um, which is traditionally, I think, mainly used to um, sort of humanize characters mm -hmm. by rendering their visuals unappealing Yeah. in a strange way. So it, it sort of emphasizes, again, character, which I think is appropriate for the story that they're telling. Um, it, it's really weird for me to compare that to Saga in the sense that I like Fiona Staples' stuff is like stunning. I could just stare at it. I don't I mean, just yeah, the, the fact that the thing that she, the thing that she did that's most known after Saga is Archie. Yeah, and yet they're both beautiful. Yeah, and I think if we look at the influences in Extremity, like Extremity is really cool in that it has a lot of international influence. You've got a lot of Katsuhiro Tomo in there. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of Akira throughout this thing. Um, you've got a lot of Hal Foster. Uh, these old sort of medieval adventure stories. How Foster uh, being known for Prince Valiant. Correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as I said, a tunnel for Akira. Uh, and there's a few other pieces in there as well, certain uh, American artists um, working within that aesthetic. So, I mean, there's a cool intertextuality, but again, it speaks to um, a sensational depiction of violence. Well, I mean, as I wonder, that, I like that point that you brought up, though, that, that being part of a legacy of, you know, humanizing people mm -hmm. using that style of artwork, because, I mean, I wonder if that speaks in its favor, though, because, I mean, part of that style is like an anti-mainstream superhero comic, anti-Archie, traditional Archie style, right? <laughs> yeah, Anti-Disney style, right? Of artwork that, you know, in the context of, you know, it's used in something like underground comics or something, you know, that fine line work, you know used to highlight you know the problems of society or the the like um, dirt of human character that kind of thing and that style could be very appropriate to the story that's being told here but then it makes me think back on saga and what is this artwork telling us about this world right and that's sort of a big question that we might have to get <laughs> at through other questions that sort of get us toward what is the meaning what is the metaphor of this particular story We went 
through a lot of permutations trying to figure out something appropriate to put to pair Saga <laughs> with. And uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about a few of those choices because I think it, they're interesting in what they illustrate about Saga. But we went with Extremity and Saga because they are both stories about this space opera-like stories that are trying to say something about war and family. So let's ask that very obvious question then, what are these works trying to say <laughs> about war and family, and where is the overlap, where is the difference? Well, I think the main premise and extremity is that family is antithetical to war. Uh, it's sort of one of the, hence why our, our protagonists, our, our main relationship is a brother-sister relationship, uh, which is a cool contrast to Saga, where it's a romantic relationship. But um, I don't know, Saga might be working with the same metaphor. Well, I mean, Saga has the very overt, it's not in the volumes we're looking at, mm -hmm. but it has the very overt statement, sex is the opposite of war. One of the characters says that. Yep. And yet, I would say in contrast to that, that one of the things I find interesting about the series is that it's in conversation with, you know, that logic that, you know, DC editor Dan... Didio, is that how we say his name? Anyway, had said at some point about how he hates superheroes having families and children because it's <laughs> antithetical to the way, you know, this type of genre works. And so it seems to me that one of the things that's very deliberately happening in Saga is, you know, and we even have the Atlanta character saying at one point early on, I think it's in the first issue, like, don't ever say, you know, our lives have to be different now, family comes first. You know, we can be these adventure characters who are like, you know fighting the good fight, doing these things, even though mostly what they're trying to do is just escape the war and be parents, have a family. You know, that the, the, the adventure, sci-fi, action hero genre is not antithetical to family relationships, to family dynamics, that we can kind of have both, which is something that they sometimes try to do with Fantastic Four comics, but often lose the thread of it and the children disappear for years at a time. Yeah, at the same time, though, I think Saga does engage with the, the traditional notion that... Um, being a superhero uh, means you kind of can't have a family unless you create a dual identity, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's the, that sense of like endangerment mm -hmm. uh, if you were to do both. Um, Saga, I think to the character of Marco very specifically, uh, is clearly in tune with that, that notion that he feels like he's endangering his family. Uh, so I, I just kind of like that that was, that was there. But again, that's well. an interesting contrast perhaps between the Alana and the Marco characters. I mean, Alana is like... Uh, don't I think right after the line that she says that I brought up about, you know, don't say that, that we have to be that certain kind of parents. I want to show my daughter the universe. I don't want to hide. I want to show my daughter the universe, yeah. which implies that they perhaps have a different interpretation of what it means to be a parent. Yeah. And in extremity, you've got kind of a, another dimension to that aspect of family, which is this sort of dangerous obligation. Mm -hmm. Jerome is motivated by avenging the death of his wife, and he expects his children to be motivated by revenge, getting revenge for the death of their and father. I think that's part of the difference on how the two interpret war, that Saga is also about the... Uh, extremity is about the idea of war being a cycle that you perpetuate through revenge and hatred. I mean, both of the leaders that we see are driven by that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Sega has some of that as well, but also there's this sense of a much more modern and jaded interpretation of war that Wreath and Landfall, did I get those names right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, that they're fighting proxy wars yes. because 
Mm-hmm. The war is about keeping other pe- keeping the populace busy and occupied while they go about doing their own thing. Yeah, I mean, it's that sort of reason, a, yeah. Yeah, a Cold War metaphor about sort of the corporatization of war and yeah. the military-industrial complex, and yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the issues that comes up in Saga and Extremity both are the subject of bodies that... They have uh, depictions of bodies that fit with their larger theme of war and fit with what makes them unique in terms of style. Uh, so let's talk some more about bodies. Let's let's talk about our favorite bodies. Well, do you want to take that one, Andrew? I do. Uh, I would like to talk about the stock in Saga, which is a really cool depiction uh, of a body, and it's very... Tell, tell our listeners what she looks like. She is, she is the spider Venus de Milo, I think is the easiest way to describe her. Right. Uh, and um, I think the most fascinating thing about the spider Venus de Milo is how normalized she is within mm-hmm. this world and within this narrative. Uh, and it's really kind of compelling within Saga. Yeah, I mean, we have her introduced as, you know, so she's, you know, a topless spider woman with like multiple levels of eyes, no arms, but, you know, the torso that she has is very conventionally attractive. Um, So she's introduced with kind of, you know, a big long skirt. And then we find out when she's revealed as an assassin that that skirt disguises all of her spider legs holding many different types of assassin weapons. Um, so and she has a relationship in the comic with with this character, the Will, who's another mercenary character who <laughs> is just sort of a generic kind of like you know muscle bound, sexy guy, stoic, silent type type of guy. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I I find their relationship great in the sense that, as you said, right, it's very normalized. You know, it's not depicted as strange in any way. You know. He likes her, she likes him. They have kind of one of those on again, off again, assassin lover relationships. One of but, those assassin lover yeah, relationships. That's you a know. trope. That's a trope <laughs> in many of the things I read. And yeah, the fact that that is normalized is, I mean, it is very powerful, right? Although we can also make the argument that we have coming up a lot of times in Saga forms of embodiment like the stock, stock's embodiment, sort of standing in for what I'll call, for lack of a better term, like real-world forms of bodily diversity. I mean, the stock is diverse in the sense that she's a spider woman, but she's a beautiful spider woman, right? And we might talk about that a little bit in terms of depictions of what we might term real-world disability in the comic and whether that's done well or not, whether we have a lot of forms of bodily diversity that are not just fantastical forms of bodily diversity and whether that matters. I think in Extremity, we're getting um, depictions of characters with different body types without those body types being particularly coded mm-hmm. uh, in any kind of like like ethical or moral sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be overweight and be a hero, for yeah. example, which yeah. is surprisingly rare yeah. mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of comics. We do have uh, you know a good range. We have like traditional Hulk-like beings such as Jerome. Uh, and we have their children who are, um, I don't know, uh, muscular by comic standards, but not you know, uh, sort of that 90s aesthetic to the point where it kind of breaks down the uh, naturalness of the narrative. Uh, we've got uh, Hobby, who, mm-hmm. Jerome's second in command, who has a pretty big gut and an eye patch, but is probably the best humor character in the series. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let's talk about that specifically with female characters, because I know Mm. you had some thoughts about one of the female characters that shows up in Extremity in the second arc. Yeah, Michael's very excited. Mashiba is by far (laughs) my favorite character in this series. Tell us us a little bit about her. She is not, at least initially when we see her, the leader of the more passive, not passive, but peaceful group, the Essene. She's a big, bulky... A woman, which is a type that honestly we don't see otherwise in this comic, but is uh, unusual in comics in general. And uh, the fact that she is allowed to be this character that is both very caring, but also very uh, capable as a warrior is something that I really appreciate. Yeah, she doesn't fall into a background role. If anything, she kind of takes over the story in a way that feels natural and earned. Uh, maybe on the other side of Saga, because we're not going to get to this, but one of the things that I think that Saga did remarkably well was um, in later issues, uh, Will gets severely injured and depressed and gains a lot of yes. weight. And he's able to go back into his role as a mercenary without the you know cliche training montage mm-hmm. where he has to get back into his physical paragon state mm-hmm. before he can be considered a, a viable anti-hero, I guess. And allowing that, that you know... Who is at least sort of physically and to a certain extent story-wise, he starts out being a fairly stereotypical character. Mm-hmm. To allow him to go through that change is one of the strengths of this comic as a serial narrative. And we might talk more about the nature of it as a serialized narrative. But... Uh, while we're talking about bodies, I think it's worth mentioning the use of prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, any comments on the use of prosthetics? I, I think they stand out in extremity in particular. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think the symbolism with Thea is very direct. The idea yes. is her hand is what made her an artist. That's kind of a limiting notion. I think most that of That bothered people. me too, yeah. yeah. It's well, like you I can mean, produce art in a lot of different ways. Is her like deciding Learning to, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it's, it's a little <laughs> heavy-handed um, uh, <laughs> that her hand gets severed and she replaces it with a weapon. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she loses the artist ability, she becomes the warrior. Uh, at the same time, we can trace sort of similar... On the other hand, uh, to bring... <laughs> damn it. To bring ho- Hobby up again, uh, he loses an eye and he keeps cheese in it for his carrot. Or for his carrot. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things... I mean, the differences, too, that I think maybe speaks to what is perhaps the strength of Extremity versus Saga is, I mean, to see that character struggle with her prosthetic limb mm-hmm. and, like, what it means to her is... a interesting it's an interesting disability story and whereas I mean I'm trying to think of a character that I mean part of the kind of like fantastical like all accepting of all forms of diversity that we see in Saga is I feel like when we do see someone with you know well I mean Prince Robot or something right he's got a cannon for an arm or something that's not something that causes him grief or anything that's just and it can morph like it can be a regular hand too yeah Yeah. exactly I mean well I mean that's something that comes up a lot in de- terms of depictions of prosthetics in science fiction, right? That mm-hmm. uh, because it's science future technology, it's, oh, we're just going to make you... We can rebuild them better. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. I like the use in Extremity of we have these prosthetics, but you are still who you were, but also it is not going to replace... It is not going to improve you. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe, I mean, because, you know, it gets into a dangerous thing. Of, you yes. know, are you like, you know, liberated by your wheelchair or imprisoned by your wheelchair? That's and then that's of, where it gets yeah. into very heavy, heavy very thick <laughs> metaphors 
in terms of like, oh, look at how these people are literally scarred by war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things, I mean, you know, related to this too, that I'm going to say is another like point for extremity in terms of just dealing with disability metaphors. I mean, the fact that there's a class aspect to that, you know, we see people from different backgrounds have access to different prosthetics, different ways of dealing with their disabilities. And it's not something that's like a heavy focus of the comic, but it's certainly present. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's scavengers who have to, you know, sort mm-hmm. of create their own prosthetics and stuff. And I mean, if she came from this saga world where I kind of feel like you could just go to a futuristic uh, hospital or whatever and get a hand that was just like your old hand. And that's like sort of how that world works, even though class is a big element of that comic mm-hmm. too. So that wouldn't just happen easily. But we do get sort of, you know the messiness of dealing with disability when you don't have access to the technology that might make you dealing with your disability for the goals that you have, you know, it's not easy, right? It's a struggle. Yeah, I think there's layers to it as well in terms of um, the depiction of the, the Pesnina princess mm-hmm. uh, who has her nose cut off mm-hmm. and it's described as the thing that absolutely ruined her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's specifically described by her mother. Right, yes. exactly. Yeah. And she... She doesn't wear any kind of prosthetic whatsoever. She's just like, this is who I am now, and now I'm a badass warrior. So on the one hand, she's being defined by her physicality, but on the other hand, again, she's not rushing to conform to some you know, accepted issue, and she might be better off for it in some ways, at least to the suggestion of the text, uh, and within that context of that um, you know, feudal society that we see depicted there. And it almost encourages her to go beyond the stereotypical role that she might have fit into mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I both so. in terms of, you know, female stereotypes, but also in terms of, you know, the warrior that she was expected to be to continue the war. And because she, she obviously, at the end of the comic, we have a moment where, you know, it ends with her having severe doubts about wanting to continue in that role. This is from Bad Girls and Transgressive Women in Popular Television Fiction and Film, edited by Julie A. Chapel and Mallory Young. Specifically, the chapter Bad Girls in Outer Space, Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples' Saga and the Graphic Representation <laughs> of Subversive Femininity That's by uh, Precup and Minea. So it's a two-part essay, kind of, and we'll get in, I think the first part relates to, so we'll return to it, but... Uh, I'm going to quote the very end of the essay here. Yeah, the second half deals with the idea, the kind of trope of uh, the strong female protagonist yeah, type, yeah. The ba- but specifically the bad girl. Mm-hmm. Can we just stop and explain that just briefly? The, the strong female protagonist, uh, you know, archetype, it's sort of become this buzzword for talking about... <laughs> There's different sides of this debate, but I mean, it's a way that we can talk about different meanings of female strength. There was sort of a presumption in certain texts, especially in the 90s, that a woman having physical strength meant that she was a strong character, you know, mm-hmm. with all the everything that goes along with that, right? Being feminist, being, you know, well-defined, being even human, right? Which is something that creators seem to struggle to write female characters as. But um, we're sort of having a pushback against that, you know, in recent years of, you know, strength means different things. The fact that a woman is strong doesn't mean it's a strong character, that type of thing. So that's sort of part of the conversation around that term. Quote, at the heart of Saga's reworking of the bad girl paradigm is the profound belief that it can function as a productive and desirable version of femininity that can successfully replace more traditional models. In Saga, the bad girl is someone who can see beyond the conventions of patriarchy, including the cult of war heroism, heteronormative sexuality, and beauty norms. 
Further, through its use of genres such as romance, soap opera, and the superhero story, Saga unveils the subversive potential of popular culture that can hide behind its escapist dimension to promote non-mainstream values. The reading of Saga as oppositional art allows for an understanding of the bad girl as, as a subject whose actions are not merely transgressive, but actively transformative as one who floats the norms of conventional femininity, destabilizes structures of oppression, and engenders a space of female empowerment. I feel like the person at the con at the conference who asks a question that's like an incredibly long preamble, yeah. which is what I've just done. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do you agree with this interpretation of the bad girl in Saga? And does it also apply to Extremity? That is also a book where female characters doing a lot of action-heavy things is prominent. I agree with that in Saga up to a point, mm -hmm. though when I'm thinking about who qualifies as a bad girl in Saga, this almost gets us back to our bodily diversity question, because, I mean, who do we have? We have Gwendolyn, who is very conventionally attractive. We have Alana, who directly having birth is still giving birth is very conventionally attractive. We have a line about, oh, this this shirt like covers my mushy bits. It's like, there aren't any mushy bits. <laughs> very beautiful. And I mean, we even have the stock who, despite her, you know, obvious, she's Spider-Woman, right? I mean, she is still very attractive and portrayed in ways that are supposed to be, you Although, know, sexy monsters. I'll always remember uh, showing the comic to a person, opening it randomly to the spider. The mm -hmm. response was, why does she have a giant vagina on her? Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. But yeah, but so I mean, in that sense, like I, I see all of that transgression happening. And I mean, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the, the sorry, the, some of the literature metaphors, you know, that are that are mm -hmm. present in both of these texts, which I think relates to that quote that you that you brought yeah, up, which I think is one of the, the stronger first of the essay. And we can, yeah. But but I, I do see that that transgression not playing out perhaps as powerfully in the bodily diversity of some of the characters in Saga who, you know, despite not being those, you know, sexy bad girls of the 90s that we might have seen in superhero comics, they're considerably more diverse and less sexualized, less objectified, or at least differently. Um, yeah. I, I think one of the great things with the female characters in Saga is how individualistic they are. Maybe yeah. you're picking mm -hmm. up on what you're saying. Yeah. I don't see Alana as a paradigm for anything. No, I it's true. No, she's no. a person. She's a very distinctive Yeah, no, Is for she sure. every woman? I don't think so. No. no. I, I think she's the any woman. Hmm. Uh, well, if we bring this to extremity and we apply it to Thea, that character is a little less defined, let's say. Mm -hmm. And that might just be a simple fact that it's only 12 issues and they're very action-packed issues. There's not a lot of character time. Um, I think you could interpret her more as trying to represent an, a new direction for <laughs> some... Like, I, you can't say woman because then you're saying that there is a woman. Uh, that there's sort of a, this, again, kind of normative model. Well, I mean, in contrast, though, between like Extremity and Saga, and this kind of gets us back to the different style of these comics, right? I mean, I guess what I'm kind of trying to get at with the women in Saga a little bit is that for all of their complexity and them being very human, their being strong female characters in the good sense, they're so pretty. They're dream girls, mm. you know? Like, I mean, I almost feel shitty about myself reading about Alana because she's just like, she's so pretty and she's so cool and like, damn it, I'm not as good as her. Yeah. And like, I do have a little bit of that feeling. She, it, it's, it's good because it is a thing where I'm reading the comic and you know, that's a female fantasy, right? And I like that about it. But they are dream girls, and the women in Extremity are not dream girls. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, there's the the simple justification, and I think it's a gross justification, but that you know, this is comics. This is what we do: is idealized bodies. 
Um, but I mean, again, as texts like extremely show, it doesn't have to be. Next, let's uh, look at the aforementioned first half of this essay by Precup and Menea. Uh, it looks a little more, I'm going to touch a little more glancingly on this. It uh, argues that Saga works to interrogate and to a certain extent uh, both act transgressively with popular narrative forms and work with them as well. Uh, that. You have this in Saga in terms of uh, Heist's romance novel in the plot. Uh, the whole part of what pushes Alana and Marco together is their shared interest in this romance novel that seems to be a metaphor for interspecies relationships that have been more or less forbidden. We have a contrast, I think, with Extremity that also sets up this idea that art is opposed to war. How do you see this art or culture versus war distinction playing out in these works? Well, can we start with Saga because you mentioned that one first? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so yeah, as you said, there's this romance novel that sort of brings them together. So Alana reads it while she is a prison guard and, and eventually gives it to Marco. I'm getting that right, right? And that's what happens. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Or reads it to him. Yeah, she reads it to yeah. him. That's right. That's right. And they both get invested in it. I mean, one of the, the glimpses that we get of the novel, too, it is a conventional romance novel in some sense, but it also, you know, has scenes where instead of going and doing something sexy, they stay home and watch TV, that kind of thing. So it's almost like a glorification of a normal relationship, which, you know, we get that play of like the fantastical and the normal, right? Which is, you know, part of what makes these characters and these relationships interesting. I loved this as a metaphor in the sense that it allows the comic to do a lot of interesting things with elevating or celebrating the value of escapist fiction, you know, escapist genres, escapist literature, which, you know, kind of gets us back to that thing of these women being dream girls and how that's not necessarily a problem, right? Like, don't we deserve, you know, dream girls? Like, as female readers of comics who have been very underserved by comics, North American comics in general for so long. And I mean, I liked, again, just, you know, elevating that as, as something that can have meaning for people was, you know, important to me. And I think it's important to the comic. And I think it allows it to do some interesting things in terms of defending its own value, I suppose. But I, I think it's earned that value as well. I don't know. What did you think, Andrew? Um, I think maybe similar to what you were saying, I really like this idea that it's the trashiest possible yes. form for a life-altering philosophy. Yeah. Uh, but Alana absolutely interprets it as that. She believes mm -hmm. it's a code, mm -hmm. right? Like, that it's, it's overtly political, and it's not really wow. clear whether I mean, yeah. when, it, when they go to heist. That it might be, or it might not yeah. be. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do feel it tries to have it both ways yes. once they get there. Yeah. Um, in Extremity, I think there's some cool pieces. Like, this is not low culture. and At least, we don't have as much sense that there is mass-produced culture in this world. Yeah, so in Extremity, we've got, I think the coolest piece is um, um, Thea's artwork, mm -hmm. uh, which we later, we discover is actually part of the dead planet, the, the ancient planet, it's part of the junkyard. Um, but I mean, as depicted throughout the story, that, that junkyard is history. 
Uh, and what's down there represents, you know, the story of all these people kind of existing, all that kind of thing. So once Thea sees that her artwork is down there, that's when she starts to understand her place in a broader universe that exists mm -hmm. outside of this cycle of violence. Um, so uh, again, in that context, the, the creation of something very simple, like it's just her sketches essentially, um, leads her to escape from the sort of cycle that the plot and is constantly depicting. I, I do have to say, one of the things I liked about the culture they depicted is the idea that uh, they don't make gravestones, they make arches. Mm. And that's a kind of tribute to the person that you can reflect on them by going through these arches, which is kind of the opposite sense of what we have of graves, that you don't walk on graves. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very much about the living to some extent more than the dead. Which is the cycle of violence. And... Yeah, yeah, and appropriate for, again, the metaphor that we're working with. Um, other than that, we don't get a lot of pieces of culture in extremity. It's a world that doesn't have We get the musician in the first issue. Well, maybe, I mean, one of the themes in both of these works then is sort of the realization or the acting out of the fact that there are different ways to produce art, different ways to produce mm. meaning. And that's sort of something that's going on in many different ways in both texts. I mean, sort of realizing that maybe you don't necessarily need your hand to be an artist, that there are other ways to be an artist, and that's explored in very negative ways in terms of, we get scenes of, you know, her, like, thinking about how she used to draw and then, like, using them in a scene in which she's torturing a guy <laughs> in extremity. Um, but, I mean, also in, in, in Saga, in terms of, you know, getting back to that. So escapism has often been characterized as a negative thing, right? You know, escapist literature, genre fiction, mm -hmm. that's like low culture. It's something that doesn't have value. It's something that, you know, is bad for your brain in some sense because it's not creative, because it's generic, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, saying that it does have value and it's the way that we use these texts, the way that these texts interact with our lives. I mean, it reminds me of something from Cavalier and Clay, um, when there's an argument in, in that novel about the value of escapism that's, that's quite similar, you know, that drawing these goofy wartime comic books, you know, has a real value because people were living, you know, these existences that were so horrible and the, the fantasy of having someone who can defeat all of the Nazis, you know, in this fantastical world isn't such a negative thing. Yeah, I think that's perfectly in keeping with um, um, J.R.R. Tolkien's arguably most mm -hmm. famous essay on fairy stories, where he mm -hmm. says, escape is noble. Escape exactly. It's virtuous. We love it. Well, um, one thing I would say about extremity that's, that's maybe interesting to what we're talking about mm -hmm. is we've got an author surrogate uh, yes. in the form of Thea. Daniel Warren Johnson writes and draws uh, extremity. So having a major character be the artist, uh, it's really hard not mm -hmm. to read extremity as you know the equivalent of Thea's artwork. And, I mean, you could do something similar with uh, Heist and Saga, although we don't really get much of him in the volumes we're looking at. So Heist is the sort of, how would we describe him? He's like a literary science fiction author, sort of, in this world, who like did this one, he says, mass market book that he's sort of ashamed of, but it maybe perhaps was actually a complicated metaphor, we're not mm -hmm. totally sure. Is that accurate? I think so. That, that's completely, yeah. that's completely <laughs> accurate. Pretty easy to read Brian yeah. K. Vaughan in that. Yeah. And I, I do think Saga's trying to be profound. Yes. I think it's, frankly, achieving it in, in yeah. many instances and in many ways. Extremity is trying to be profound in its politics as well. As I said before, I think it falls back on narrative tropes. For me, the comparison, in my mind, this is totally subjective. Uh, when I read Saga, I feel like I'm reading the work by a writer and a visual artist who are at the absolute top of 
their game. Mm-hmm. And when I read Extremity, I feel like I'm, I'm reading a, a really talented uh, young writer mm-hmm. sort of finding their footing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a question between you know uh, the polished work versus the, um, uh, the discovery work, I guess. Um, I'd like to pull out another uh, scholarly quotation, and if you think my method is to just lean heavily on other scholars <laughs> and put a question at the end of it, you are right. I think that's called doing research. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, this is from the uh, essay collection Classics and Comics, edited by George Kovacs and C.W. Marshall. Uh, this particular chapter is Eros Conquers All, Sex and Love in Eric Shanor's Age of Bronze uh, by Chiara Salprizio. I hope I pronounced that somewhere in the right ballpark. Uh, I've been working on uh, some research for Age of Bronze, or working on reading it as it's going to be part of the superhero course I'm teaching recently. I kind of wish we paired it with this just to pare down my own workload, but... Uh, <laughs> Here's a quotation that I think applies or has an interesting application for Saga. As his sophisticated portrait of Helen makes clear, Shanoir has a clear, distinctive style of representation that he takes his work far beyond the realm of the average superhero comic. His honesty, his variety, his humanity, and in particular his privileging of Eros and its power in many relationships he delineates, all of these qualities make his account of the Trojan War appealing and accessible to other non-traditional comic book audiences, which include adult, gay, and female readers. Its amorous and erotic scenes most clearly reveal the ethos at the heart of his message of peace and personal responsibility. In sum, it is by making love and not war in his own skillfully crafted epic that Shanoir ultimately inspires his audience to try and do the same. This was done for Shanoir's Age of Bronze, which, as the quotation implies, is a retelling of uh, not just the Iliad, but the stories surrounding the Iliad. Uh, but I think it really applies nicely to Saga as well, or at least raises some interesting questions in relation to Saga. Uh, thoughts? I don't know. I feel like I should have just a ready-made answer. I mean, we're sort of talking about, you know, sort of the influence of Saga, right? I mean, you know, the impact of it sort of on the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't know that it's had, like, I would like to be like, oh, we're in the post-Saga era now and everything has changed. I mean, I find it hard to think that it's been as direct as that. I, I really hope that it's one of those things like the Wonder Woman movie or the Black Panther movie where at least it convinces people that different types of representation, you know, different types of texts can be interesting, especially genre texts. Because, you know, if we have female representation in American comics, it's often more on the indie side rather than the genre side. So to have a text that, I mean, from the numbers I've seen, Saga appeals to women a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> there are parts of it. I mean, this gets back to the prettiness of it, but it reminds me a little bit of the original Shira cartoon. You know, mm-hmm. the way they sort of did market research about what do little girls like the most <laughs> and like, or like, oh, she should be, you know, a warrior princess who rides like a Pegasus unicorn. And I'm like, damn it, they have my number. Because <laughs> I mean, Saga's like, oh, people wear like, you know, sexy, cool outfits. Not sexy, but, you know, sportswear inspired, you know, contemporary fashion and ride around on multicolored zebra space creatures. And I'm like, it's so similar, right? Well, but, I, think, yeah. I think Saga is a not just a good example, but maybe the, like, exemplar example of a comic that 
has done a really great job bringing in readers from outside of traditional comic fans. Yes, yes. It has not had such an impact on changing traditional comic patterns. I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying, but I don't. That seems like a very negative thing to say, and I, I kind of am trying to not say that. I mean, I would. I would like to see more superhero comics that were more influenced by Saga, I will say, mm-hmm. and I have not seen that be a title wave of change. Well, it seems like so easy for like Guardians of the Galaxy do this for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually kind of one of the things that strikes me about the contrast we're creating today. Um, extremity, I don't know if this is like a fair label to put on Extremity compared to the rest of the comics field, but compared to Saga, Extremity feels very old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, very conventional in a lot of its choices uh, and again maybe even cliche at times I could see extremity existing in you know the 80s context of you know early graphic novels I, I don't think it would be totally out of place I think I mean if nothing else the female characters would be much more sexualized yes yeah, so that would be <laughs> that would be the major difference that I would see between but the, yeah the violence the post-apocalypse tone it's very metal it's oh, yeah. very Mad Max inspired yeah, too he, he, I think metal is a heavy influence on this yeah. creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, specifically, I'm, I didn't mention as many influences, but there's actually a lot of Mobius in yeah, there as well. For sure, yeah, for sure. What do you think, Ed? Like, do you have thoughts about the influence of, of Saga? In terms of what it's doing to the industry right now? Um, it, it's weird because it is so recent. Yeah. And it's really easy to say this thing is changing everything, mm-hmm. and then five years later, maybe you don't get that same sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think Saga is a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of what it's doing is is really positive. So I'm really for a glad comic book a not book. made by Marvel or DC mm-hmm. to have you know I can be just you know not in my comic book class but just in any class you know undergraduate classroom at the university and someone might be wearing a lion cat T-shirt that type of thing you know like I mean it has become a phenomenon you know almost equivalent to a popular TV show even though despite its I mean, bestsellingness it's still typically yeah, it, not as popular as that. it's probably not doing uh, Walking Dead numbers but. It's doing really well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's certainly breaking ground in a way that Walking Dead is. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, The other part of this quotation is is the way that, uh, in this case, Age of Bronze uses sex. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning how Saga uses sex because that relates to one of our other proposed pairings. Uh, Andrew, do you want to talk about that a little, or...? Should we save that for its own special episode? Yeah, no, just just to get a little bit into our, our, our methodology here. I really wanted to do sex criminals paired with Saga, and Michael wouldn't let me. <laughs> he was really determined to do extravagant. I've never seen Michael so convicted of something. Um, so wait, like, wait until we yeah. do the duck episode. <laughs> yes, I didn't know that. I would duck um, so yeah, no, I, I think sex criminals is another kind of a... Um, cutting-edge, sex-positive portrayal that we're seeing in comics. Saga is doing a lot of the same things in a much more overt fantasy setting. And in some ways, that's good because it, it puts that, that sex within that realm of fantasy, which then makes it a little easier to justify things like the perfection of the bodies of the characters. Um, whereas Sex Criminals is trying, as silly as the premise of Sex Criminals, which is um, when they orgasm, time stops. As silly as that premise is, everything else about Sex Criminals is extremely grounded and character-based uh, and realistic. Um, so I think there's a really cool pairing there as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to say. That. Just in terms of, in general, like the depiction of sex and saga? Well, I mean, it's a huge theme in the comic, you know, obviously. I mean, in terms of that term sex positive, I mean, perhaps one of the things that I see in this, I mean, what do we want to call it? The 
2010s era of like comic production. I don't know when did this start, but That's even just right. the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I mean, the, but how sex positivity is is a little bit different than it was sort of in the 90s and early 2000s, where that often meant a lot of the same, you know, in terms of ultra-sexualized women and whatnot. Like, I would say that there was, although women have always been making comics that were very sex-positive in, you know, more diverse ways, those weren't generally very popular. And, I mean, we are talking about two comics, you know, well, three comics now, like about male... (laughs) written by men anyway, so, I mean, I shouldn't overstate this. But... It is a different sex positivity that I feel like is more inclusive of female desire than, you know, some of the things that, and I think, you know, something like, you know, although there were female creators involved in something like the Eros line and stuff, the sex positivity that I see there, I see as being more indebted to male-dominated underground comics than mm-hmm. something like Saga, which, again, I do see a lot more sort of appeal for female readers as much as I don't want to essentialize women in that as I never want to do but but yeah I I do think if we're talking about the influences uh, that Saga has had on the overall comics market I think the existence of Saga made the existence of a comic like Sex Criminals published by a major comic publisher more plausible Mm -hmm. yeah I think just to to add some context if we were to look at sort of this previous generation of, of sex positive comics we might look at something like Love and Rockets. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Which, as you said, is, is very much um, seen through a male perspective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so much more we could say about sort of the representation of sex and saga. I mean, one of the things that I think is the most important thing is sort of that combination of sort of the fantastical and the mundane, which we see in a lot of the sexual pairings. I mean, we could talk... We could talk for probably a whole podcast about the about the comics where where the will goes to Sextillion, which is the oh, yeah. sex planet, and we've got so many things going on there. I mean, from he arrives at the planet and is greeted by, you know, two giant heads on sexy fishnet, you know, uh, platform heels, that is <laughs> making some fairly ominous commentaries about you know what like about the Ms. Pac-Man syndrome or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's wandering through this world that is just all sex. And there is a lot of sex positivity, even in his wandering through. We see lots of different types of sex happening. We see a big orgy happening with, you know, strap-ons and various types of sex and female-female sex, like various, you know, iterations of everything. And But, you know, then he's bored by this world and he's offered Sophie, who's initially known as Slave Girl, and then that becomes a commentary on... Well, Brian K. Vaughn has specifically said that it was meant to be, you know, a takedown of, like, the slave girl trope as being sexy. Well, yeah, I think it's great to have that scene in there in order to establish the line. Mm -hmm. Because sex positivity can be used to um, condone a lot of moral practices. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think in that instance, Brian K. Vaughn is is saying, you know, here's sort of the positive sex stuff. uh, And here's where it becomes violent, where it becomes Mm -hmm. abusive. And there is a line. And you know, kind of to be able to see that, I like that. And there, there is like a very important, you know, I I feel like it's easy to take some of the things that Saga does 
so well for granted because mm-hmm. it does do them so well and so seamlessly. But I mean, if you think about something like, you know, that sex planet trope and how it's been used mm-hmm. in other supposedly progressive texts, like say Star Trek, mm-hmm. that, you know, has like Riza and they're always going to Riza and it just always seems like I, I've never quite been able to understand the appeal of Riza for the female characters in that universe because it kind of seems like a sextillion, but like aimed at men specifically. And that's not something that's ever raised as being problematic within a text like that, that again is supposedly a progressive text. And so Saga is just like light years beyond that in terms of doing this much more intelligently, much more interestingly with a critique built in that's missing from other portrayals of, of that trope. Yeah, and just to connect it to Extremity briefly, I, I think it's interesting that there is no love, sex, anything uh, subplot yeah. within extremity and, and I think yeah. the point is they don't have time for that yeah. uh, and that actually kind of adds something to it I mean I totally well, uh, ship the uh, I was going to ask if it's there <laughs> or not because I, I worry a, that I'm reading into it because there's no other plot yeah there. I mean I think there are glances you can yeah, read into yeah, I think but right. also uh, I think there are other moments that wait yeah. who are we shipping who are we shipping Thea and Michelle oh yeah. okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, she's her spiritual mentor, but is there something else? That I don't <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about that, you know, I mean, is it important that it's female characters that tend to be the, you know, most transgressive characters in these texts that seem to be, mm-hmm. you know, leading these, you know, anti-war messages, you know, these, you know, integrating escapist literature with, you know, meaningful messages, you know, I mean, it's it's female characters that well, are doing these things, uh, right? Beyond the, the scope that we're looking at, but... Uh, I'm going to plug Precup and Mania's essay again because uh, it does look at what happens in the issue immediately after what we're looking at, where it introduces the two um, gay male journalists, yes. as, and they stick around right. for a very long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are other representations, just less so in the startup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, just that sexual diversity that's just built into the world of saga is so important Mm -hmm. right and i mean it's almost like i feel like one of the reasons we haven't sort of talked about that that much is because it's just so it is just built into everything that's like you know a given of that world but that's one of the things that's most important and just plain good about this book yeah if we were to discuss it it would just be us high-fiving each other pretty much As always, we like to join our two readings with a scholarly reading, and today Andrew will be talking about Hilary Shute's Disaster Drawn. Go ahead, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, The full title here is Disaster Drawn, Visual Witness, Comics, and Documentary Form. Uh, This is published by Hilary Shute in 2016. Shute has a really strong place in the history of comics scholarship, beginning with her pioneering work on Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Her 2010 work, Graphic Women, is essential reading to any exploration of gender in the comics form. Uh, I want to start, however, with a caveat. Disaster Drawn is about historical portrayals of violence in comics, comics as documentary. Uh, And there is something genuinely gross about trying to compare real traumatic experiences to imagined ones. I want to be clear that I'm not condoning that, but a lot of the ways in which Shoot discusses the depiction of real trauma in this text offers insights into the very, very different ways that we can discuss the depiction of fictional violence in a text like Extremity or Saga. If, however, a listener were to feel that this logic doesn't hold, and the apples versus oranges nature of this comparison invalidates this discussion entirely, I really couldn't argue against that. Conversely, if there's something useful here, cool. 
The core of Shute's argument pertains to modal reach. She begins with a simple question. Why would anyone ever draw comics when we have photographs? Her answer is that the medium of comics is uniquely well-suited to capture our contemporary understanding of history as a fluid, malleable, ambiguous thing. Thus, comics histories find themselves occupying an ideal position as our society shifts from diachronic history to what some refer to as Foucauldian history, with its emphasis on uncertainty. Comics represent uncertainty very well. Shute also illustrates, however, the comics form itself is quite specifically a response to traumatic history, with particular emphasis on World War II, and thus this unique position I mention is perhaps not accidental. Shute argues, quote, movingly, unflinchingly, comics works document, display, furnish. They engage the difficulty of spectacle instead of turning away from it. They risk representation, end quote. Shute is also notably interested in the ethics of representation, and here again in her account, comics are uniquely well-positioned. Shute describes the comics creation process as inhabiting, both in terms of character and setting. An artist must embed themselves in a way that transcends conventional camera-based reportage, thus generating stronger bonds of things like human sympathy and empathy. The focus of Shute's sample here is Kaiji Nakazawa, Art Spiegelman, and Joe Sacco and on the sophisticated and nuanced techniques by which these respective authors draw disasters. Each author is a high respected auteur within the comics field, uh, individuals whose reputations precede them and whose influence is well documented amongst the current generation of comic scholars and creators alike. This is a difficult book to criticize, but two issues stand out. One, it could be argued, as I would, that Shute places too much emphasis on one genre's prominence within the overarching field of comics. Very simply put, the genre, or perhaps form, of comics that she's describing is maybe neither as popular nor influential as she makes them out to be. As mentioned, the influence of these artists is obvious, but the authors imitating them are not only in this particular field. Two, Shute kind of rewrites comics history in a few instances in order to serve the interest of her argument, perceiving comics as a post-World War II phenomenon, for example, or in seeing 1972 rather than 1986 as the rise of modern comics. To be clear, this is not a book that's sloppy with its history, uh, but perhaps controversial in terms of where some of the lines are drawn. Shoot might be right, but there's a tension there that should maybe be accounted for a little bit more. Disaster Drawn, overall, is an important text in the field of comics studies. It offers us insights into the unique capabilities of comics as documentary, uh, and with apologies for, again, my decontextualization, beyond documentary as well. This is a book that helps us to understand what comics can do with things like pain, violence, memory, and history. This may be entirely off base as a direction of discussion based on this, but it strikes me that in terms of documentation, that we have a scene in Extremity that I feel kind of conflicted about uh, the way that the Essene break away ritually from their uh, structure of uh, violence that, as the characters put it, we take the hate on our back. Mm -hmm. And specifically, we have the characters inscribe the names of the people lost as our uh, extremity person. <laughs> do you have, what did you think of that scene? I think it works as a bridge between that sort of um, um, violence and love thing that we're talking about, or maybe violence and pacifism, because what we're doing is a violent act. But at the same time, by doing that, I think the text is saying that, that violence has to be purged. 
that that desire has to be you know, sated somehow. Maybe not even just violence, but like revenge. So I, I think it, it is nicely consistent uh, with some of the basic themes of the text and again, showing that, that violence is, is a thing, it's a, it's a problem. Um, so having a kind of violent pacifist way of working through it, I think is kind of interesting. Uh, in terms of how that comes back to what, what, what Shoot is talking about with um, things like memory and memorialization. Uh, I think there's, there's interesting pieces there. It's a little hard for me to come up with like a direct... I mean, in terms of uh, memorializing, I prefer arches, I think. Yeah. <laughs> arches seem like a better solution in extremity. Well, I mean, I wonder with Saga, I mean, it's almost, it's almost a contrast, right? I mean... <laughs> I don't want to say that Saga is an anti-autobiographical comic, but it is sort of in terms of its argument that, you know, like a supposedly dumb work of genre fiction can also be really meaningful and tell a lot about people's lives and be important in people's lives, you know, which is almost an argument for, you know, comics other than Mouse can also have tremendous value, which I mean, I'm not saying that Mouse doesn't have tremendous value. I honestly think it's just the greatest comic of all time. But I mean, it is, you know, providing us another way of looking at, which I mean, maybe this addresses your question of like, can some of the insights that Shoot has in that book be applied to other types of comics, which, you know, aren't necessarily based on real experiences of real people. And I think it does have value, but I, I agree with you that we should be careful about making that, mm-hmm. yeah, making I, that direct comparison. And I think if we are going to line it up with um, the concept of Foucauldian history, one of the major elements of that that concept is that fiction and reality aren't as yeah. clear-cut as we might think. Spiegelman really clearly engages with that. Yeah, for sure. But then, of course, there's dangers in, like, you know, the slippery slope of that. Yes, yeah. yeah it, the furthest extension of that would be Holocaust denial, right? Which, you know, facts exist, and that's something that we need to keep reminding ourselves in this context. Yeah, and I, I think Shoot is really big in this text on the concept of comics being able to serve as yes. document, yeah. as evidence, mm-hmm. which is kind of important. That's it for us this time. We'd like to thank St. Jerome's for the use of their space and the Games Institute for equipment. See you next podcast, folks.